Let's turn back to Romans chapter 8. Thank you, Jerry, for your testimony. We are thankful to see your love of Christ and His Word, hiding it in your heart, speaking of it often, speaking of it with great affection. You are an encouragement to us. Lord, don't let Him pass us in our affection for You. Remember from whence Thou art fallen, repent and do the first works. We all should be aiming to have our first love at all times for the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 29 through 31. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Father in heaven, again, with the same intent, I ask Thee to give us the eyes of the Holy Spirit of God that we might see with our understanding these things that are freely given to us of Thee and that we might believe them as fully as You intend for us to believe them and that they would change our lives. Help us, O Lord, to love Thee and to love thy Son, Jesus, who made all this possible. We thank thee for thy loving purpose, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 8.28, we looked at this morning. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. And then we have these three verses that begin with the word for, which is another coordinating conjunction tying verses 28 and 29 together. Because our brother, by the Holy Spirit, is about to explain God's purpose in calling us, which resulted in us loving Him. And we always want to keep the order correct. God loved us first, and therefore we love Him. 1 John 4.19 And it's just as true in this passage. Because in verse 28, it says, To them that love God... But in verse 29, it says, For whom he did foreknow, which is his love of them before time. That foreknowledge there is not his omniscience of what we would do. It is his love, his everlasting love of us ourselves, of they themselves, of those there in Romans chapter 8. For whom he did foreknow. It doesn't say for what he foreknew they would do. We don't believe in any conditional aspect of election. We believe in unconditional election. An unconditional predestination based on God's choice to love us before the world began. And it's from that that we love him. And so we always want to keep the order correct. Who are the called according to his purpose? God has a purpose. In the lives of those that love Him. God had a purpose in the lives of those who are the called. And when did that purpose have its beginning? We're not told 
a time phrase in here like we are in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, we are told that the time was before the foundation of the world. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, we're told by a time phrase, before the world began. We're not told here, but we know from those two places and others like them, that God's purpose was toward us, for us, planning things on our behalf from the very beginning, before the foundation of the world, before the world began. So verses 29 and 30 are going to start off a golden chain of five lengths of salvation that were given to us by God's purpose before the world began. Let's start with the first one. For whom he did foreknow. God's purpose begins in his foreknowledge. Now his foreknowledge has two aspects. And we've been over some of these things before. And so we'll not spend too much time explaining them today. If you go back to some sermons called the Dominion of God, we dealt with them at length. Because they're important to understand. God's omniscience is that he knows by his knowledge all things that are going to happen. All events. All secondary causes and effects. All choices that we would ever make. He knows all those things because he's omniscient. Nothing is hid from his eyes. He sees the beginning from the end. The things that are at the end are no more difficult for him to see than things that are already past. He sees it all as one because he's omniscient. But that's not under consideration here in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. Because it's not speaking of his bare knowledge of facts and events that are going to take place. It is speaking of his love that he set upon us before the world began. And here it's foreknowing individuals. Because it's his purpose for them. It's not all men. Because it's already been told to us in verse 28 that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose. For whom? That is those that love God and those that are called according to his purpose. God foreknew them. God did not base any of his salvation on what we would do as a meritorious or instrumental or other cause or condition for him to do it for us. It's not based on him foreseeing any good thing in you. We know the verse as well. Psalm 14, 1 through 3. Psalm 53, 1 through 3. They both say the same thing. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all together gone out of the way. They are together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Both passages. We do believe that God is omniscient and able to look down upon the children of men and to see what they're going to do. When God looked down through his omniscience, through his foreknowledge in that sense, upon the children of men, he saw that there was not a single one that understood, that did good, that did righteousness. They are all together become filthy. They have gone out of the way. There is none righteous. There is none that understandeth. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And I've added in a few clauses from Romans chapter 3. That's what he saw when he looked down on what we would do. But before the world began, he had set his love on us. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. These two chapters go together well. The last section of Romans 8 and the first part of Ephesians 1. They belong together. For whom he did foreknow. Thank you, Lord, for putting that word whom there, that personal pronoun, referring to them, the persons of chapter 8 and verse 28, that you foreknew them. Not that you foreknew what they were going to do. He foreknew what he was going to do for them. And he set his love on them. It tells us in Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Having predestinated us 
unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. That one sentence there, Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, is the single best commentary on Romans 8, 29 through 31. Because these verses here in Ephesians 1 tell us that it's his purpose. It was according to his will. It was according to his choice. It's the praise of the glory of his grace. And so it lines up so well with, to them that love God, to them that are the called, According to his purpose. Because we see here the purpose of God is the good pleasure of his will, where he's made us accepted in the beloved, according as he hath chosen us in him, predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. Because Romans eight twenty nine and 30 is all about us becoming the sons of God. Because we're going to read that in verse 29. Let's go back to Romans 8 and verse 29. I just want to emphasize the importance of the purpose of God that verse 28 ends with and verse 29 takes up. For whom he did foreknow. Brethren, God hates the wicked. Psalm 5, 5 tells us, The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Psalm 11, 5 tells us, The Lord trieth the righteous, But him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. In the great day of judgment, the Lord is going to tell the wicked that he never knew them. He never knew them. That does not mean he wasn't aware of their existence. It means he never loved them. He never had any favor or approval toward them. He never blessed them. It was never his purpose to do anything good for them, except to show them in their lifetime here that he is a merciful and benevolent God, and they would hate him in spite of that. Every time you have a fruitful season, every time you have joy and gladness in your heart, because of things outside of your control, you should thank the God of heaven because they're from him. Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from above from the Father of lights in whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And Acts chapter 14 tells us that fruitful seasons that fill our hearts with food and gladness, that's from the God of heaven. It's a continual witness that he is good. And they still, God is not in all their thoughts. And they are not in his thoughts as far as any benevolent or loving thoughts. Because he loves his righteous children. He loves his elect children. He loves the sons of God. And this foreknowledge here in the first part of verse 29 is not omniscient foreknowledge of things or events or actions on their part, but it's him setting his love on them personally before the world began. The Bible tells us that he's loved us with an everlasting love. The Bible tells us that before the world began, he set his love upon us. The Bible tells us as Christ loved the church, and that is no temporal love. That is an everlasting love that set him up before the world began to come and be the Savior of his people. The Bible tells us that the names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world when they were assigned by covenant to the Lord Jesus Christ because the love of God was already set upon his people. This is how we understand the first clause of verse 29 as it explains the purpose of God toward his children. Verse 28 ended with God's purpose. Verses 29 through 30 explain what that purpose is how extensive it is, how far it extends, and when it began. It was based on his foreknowing them before his predestination. He set his love on them and predestinated them to be his children. Verse 29, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God is building himself a family. God is building himself a family and angels are not included. God is building himself a family and the wicked are not included. God is building himself a family of those he has made his children. He chose to love them and he predestinated them to end up looking like the Lord Jesus Christ. But when that family is gathered in heaven, 
The Lord Jesus Christ will be the preeminent firstborn. He will get all the glory because he is our older brother. He is our superior brother. He is our all in all. And that's the goal that God has through salvation. He is going to get himself a family out of rebel sinners of the human race and exalt them to be his beloved children by special predestinating adoption. Others will be passed by as he chooses these men, women, boys and girls to be his family. But Jesus Christ will be the chief son. He'll be the firstborn. He'll be the preeminent one is what it means by the word firstborn there. He'll be the chief one among the sons of God. We'll be joint heirs with him, but he'll also be our Lord and Savior, and we'll love him through eternity. Brethren, we are predestinarian Baptists. We are predestinarian Baptists because of these two verses and because of Ephesians 1, 5, and 11. The word predestination is found four times in your Bible, twice right here in verses 29 and 30, and twice in Ephesians chapter 1. What does it mean? It means that God determined a destination beforehand. Pre is a prefix meaning before. Pre-destination. Before you got there, it was determined where you were going to get. Because God determined it according to His purpose and according to His love that He had set upon the whom of verse 29, which is the them of verse 28. God has loved us before the world was formed. Before Adam was put in the Garden of Eden, God had set His love upon His children and had predestinated them. Before Satan entered the Garden of Eden, God's children already had a destination that was guaranteed for them. And it's going to be guaranteed on this five-link chain of salvation. And that is God's purpose for them. It started out with His love of them, and then it went to His guaranteeing their destination beforehand. He predestinated them to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Remember the words in Ephesians? He predestinated them to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself. Those two verses are so close together because they're both talking about the gift of God called adoption. Justification is one thing, but justification is not as good as adoption. For God to justify us does not make us His sons. But for God to adopt us as His sons, we have to be justified. Give me adoption. No wonder the Bible says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. First John chapter 3. Verses 29, verse 29 especially, but 29 and 30 are explaining... Our sonship. That's what the whole chapter's been about. Isn't the first 16 verses the fact that we are the sons of God without condemnation and God has sent His Holy Spirit into our hearts whereby we cry, Abba, Father? Our adoption is in the first 16 verses. In verses 17 through 25, God revealing us the manifestation of the sons of God to the universe is under consideration. And now He's telling us here, How much He takes care of those sons. Everything in this life, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For, look at God's purpose. It started way back in eternity. For whom He set His love upon, He also predestinated to be the children of God through Jesus Christ their Lord. To be conformed to that perfect standard. By the time we get to heaven, God will have changed us including our bodies, so that we will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We will not be a whole bunch of clones of Jesus Christ, but we will have all the righteous character of Him because we will be clothed in His righteousness. We will have a holy nature and our bodies will be sinless. We will be delivered from the presence of sin. We'll be delivered from the practice of sin, the penalty of sin, the plan of sin. All of it. To be in His presence. This is about our sonship in verse 29. Because when you read about His Son, and that we might be that Son's brethren, we're talking about the sons of God and being the children of God. Remember one of my favorite verses from Hebrews 2.13. When Jesus Christ stands before God, He will say, Behold, I and the children 
which God hath given me, which thou hast given me. Hebrews 2.13. Because we'll be the children of God. And how do we become the children of God? By God's purpose, who called us. And then we have the explanation in 29 and 30. It started out with him foreknowing us by his love being set upon us in eternity past. And then he predestinated us. He set a destination beforehand. That that destination is, they're going to be my sons, and they're going to enjoy heaven forever as my heirs. They're going to be joint heirs with Jesus Christ. They're going to be conformed to look like him and be like him, even though they were originally made of corrupt human flesh. They're going to be like him and enjoy me for eternity. This is the lot of God's people. This is the goal of the universe. God will get himself glory upon the reprobates as well because he'll show his wrath and his power in them as Romans 9:23 tells us. But upon the elect who are described here, they're going to be conformed to the image of his son. You will be righteous in heaven because you'll be clothed with his righteousness completely. Your body will be delivered from sin. It'll be incorruptible like his. Did Jesus see corruption? No. If you get died and are buried in a couple of days, will you see corruption? Yes. But will that corruptible be raised incorruptible? Yes. yes. You, you will be conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's already working on that now. He's already regenerated you so that we have a conformed heart and spirit of the new man that is like the Lord Jesus Christ because it is created in righteousness and true holiness. And as long as we submit ourselves to Him, we can be more and more conformed to His image here in this world. Whether you submit yourself to Him or not, before you get in that world, you will be conformed to His image. Right. But we want to be conformed to it now. We want to humble ourselves before God and let Him work by His Spirit in us that we will walk as dear children here. There are some that walk as foolish children. There are some that walk as carnal children. Some walk... Like they're still admitting that they were once children of the devil. But we have to cast off the works of darkness and walk as children of light, is what the Bible teaches us to do. We're predestinarian Baptists for a reason because it's taught right here. There are so many today that don't know a thing about predestination. They wouldn't even know what we meant when we told them we're predestinarian Baptists. They wouldn't know a thing about predestination. It's not preached, it's not popular. To think that God predestinated some or all. But let me tell you, the doctrine of predestination is just as true about Arminianism as it is Calvinism. And it is what we believe. They just don't understand it. They believe. And they teach. That if you do not invite Jesus Christ into your heart to be your personal Lord and Savior, then you're going to go to hell and spend an eternity in the lake of fire. Do all of those people that believe that also believe that God is omniscient of all things that are going to come to pass? Then why did he go ahead and create all those that wouldn't invite Jesus into their heart unless he had predestinated them to spend eternity in hell? Right. They just don't ever think about it far enough to figure out that they already believe in predestination. It's just not the Bible doctrine of predestination. The Bible doctrine of predestination is, is not that God's trying to save any but that God is guaranteeing the salvation of those he set his affection upon. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. And our ultimate destination will be to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, the Lord Jesus Christ, might be the firstborn, get all the preeminent glory among a bunch of brethren who were saved by his life, his death, and his life again. That's the purpose of salvation. That's what heaven's going to be like. Jesus Christ gets all the glory, and we're going to be around him as his brethren, looking like him in all the respects of holiness and righteousness, and enjoying him and his Father forever. This is the goal. And do you know what? God guaranteed it before the world began. He determined that destination beforehand. He predestinated us to that end. So we come out of verse 29 and go into verse 30. Moreover, not only did God set his love upon us, which is what caused us to love him. Not only did God predestinate us to be his children. Moreover, 
whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. And the blessed God can use past tense verbs for something that's going to happen in the future. Because when God guarantees something's going to happen, it's as good as done. You're not glorified yet. And so these verbs aren't exactly true of us yet because we're not glorified. But God can speak of them as something that's going to happen in the future as if it's in the past. Because when God promises, He will perform His promise. He said in Romans chapter 4 and verse 17, I have made thee a father of many nations when Abraham wasn't a father of anything. I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, that's able to raise the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. God is not bound to verb tenses just like we are. Because when God promises to do something, it's as good as done. Verse 30, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Predestination being God guaranteeing the destination beforehand of his elect. He's loved them. He has guaranteed by purposing their destination beforehand. Then he calls them, then he justifies them, and he'll glorify them. When he calls them, he appoints, charges, commands, regenerates, fits, enables, fills them with everything to be a son of God. It's what we would call much of the vital transaction in our salvation, but it also includes some of the eternal because it's an appointment. Some of the things that I told you before in the first sermon... When God gives a person a calling, or when God calls a person like Bezalel, it's not a gospel call. Let me, let me go back over something I said earlier from Matthew 22 and verse 14. Matthew 22 and verse 14, where God is, de- is describing and comparing the kingdom of heaven to a king having a marriage for his son, and he's bringing in all the Gentiles because the Jews weren't worthy of it, and he burned up them in their city. And then he sends his servants out into the highways and hedges to compel Gentiles to come into his house. To be there for the marriage. Because he wants guests. He wants brethren for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the the king comes into that wedding. And he finds a man there without a wedding garment. And he says, friend. Why why don't you have a wedding garment on? The man is speechless. And he sends his servants to bind that man up and toss him out of there. Because he doesn't belong in that wedding. And the last words of that little... Description of the kingdom of heaven there in Matthew 22, it's verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called. The gospel goes out indiscriminately because we can't always tell who the children of God are. The gospel is preached and people come into a church for whatever reasons. And so there are people that have come into this church and there are people that have come into every other church that don't have on a wedding garment because they're not the elect of God, nor are they regenerated nor justified by Christ. Many are called. That's the gospel call in Matthew 22, verse 14. Many are called, but few are chosen. The gospel's broader in its effect than the election of God, which is narrower in its effect. That's the gospel call. But when we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and you might as well turn there to see it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. There's a call of God that is in front of the gospel call that is necessary for us to believe the gospel. Verse 22 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. That was the two hang-ups these different cultural and national groups had. So what does God do for them? Does He preach something that would satisfy either of them? No. 1 Corinthians 1.23, in spite of what verse 22 tells us they wanted, in spite of the market survey God took of these two nations, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. And that is the way we all would respond to the gospel if it were not for verse 24. But unto them which are called, not unto them which shall be called, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
What makes a Greek believe the foolishness of the gospel? He would ordinarily consider it foolishness. Why does he believe it? Why does he consider it the wisdom of God? Why does a Jew demanding a sign and stumbling over the gospel all of a sudden consider the preaching of the gospel the power of God? They don't need to see a sign because they hear the truth of the gospel and they say that's as much power as there is. The Greeks hear the gospel and they say that's as much wisdom as there is. What made that difference? Because there was a calling that came first. And that calling is God's calling. When we go to other places, it's being born again. When we go to other places, it's being quickened. It's being given a spiritual man. Otherwise, you wouldn't see, hear, or receive those things. If we keep reading here, the apostle is going to explain to us how much this is in the purpose of God. Verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He's mocking both Jews and Greeks because his foolishness is wiser than the Greeks seeking after wisdom and his foolishness, his weakness is more powerful than the Jews looking for a sign. Then he says in verse 26, for ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many mighty, not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. When you look around, you can see the calling of God. Who believes the gospel? The wise of this world? No. The rich of this world? No. The noble of this world? No, not in gen- generally that is not true. But you can look around and see the calling of God by those who believe the gospel. They were the ones that God chose. And his call is, an, is a charge and an appointment and ordination to them that equips them fully as the sons of God. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Paul said, I was called to be an apostle. I was ordained to be an apostle. I was called to be an apostle. I was appointed to be an apostle. For we have not been appointed to obtain wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The calling of God is our vocation to be His children. It makes us His children. It includes our regeneration. It's an appointment that we are the sons of God, and it involves us being alive. That's why we call a vital phase, but it comes out of an appointment that was based on his predestination. Back to Romans chapter 8. Back to Romans chapter 8. What we're dealing with in Romans eight twenty nine through 31 is what God does for us. That's why it says in verse 31, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? The call, the call that's involved here. The call that's involved here in Romans chapter 8, 28 through 31 is not the gospel call. It's God's call. Like when he appoints or ordains or regenerates or fits or gives a vocation to anyone else. It's his work. And it's going to be unbroken. Every single one that was predestinated will be called. Everyone that's called is going to be justified. Someone will say, well, well why does the call come in front of justification Because you've taught us that the call is vital and justification is legal. And that would put justification in front of the call. Well, until the Lord Jesus Christ came, everyone was called before they were justified. For 4,000 years, you were called to be a child of God before Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for our justification. And God doesn't always put them in order because it doesn't matter whether he puts them in order or not. They're all absolutely certain and sure. In 2 Timothy 1.9, it says, who hath saved us and called us. In 2 Peter chapter 1, it's make your calling and election sure. Which comes first? Who hath saved us and called us. That's calling second. 2 Peter chapter 1, make your calling and election sure. That's putting calling in front of election. Does it matter to God? Not a bit. Because it's all guaranteed by him and his power to perform. That isn't the issue. 
The issue is that every single one of those for whom all things work together for good, every single one of them has been foreknown by the love of God, has been predestinated to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, will be called, will be justified, and will be glorified. And that's the issue. That's the promise. That's the guarantee. And brethren, if we were in the cold, damp sands of the catacombs underneath the city of Rome, and we had had ten of our members fed to lions or gladiators in the Colosseum, and we were gathered around a candle, and we had the epistle of the Romans to read these words, they would be precious indeed to our souls. Because we would know that God had loved us from the very beginning in a forelove, in an everlasting love, and that everlasting love had resulted in predestination, calling, justification, and would glorify us. And as the rest of this passage is going to say, there is no sword that can separate us from the love of Christ. There is no death that can separate us from the love of God. It is a shame that we live in such a pampered generation where we can't fully appreciate these words. But for you to be convinced and for you to be comforted and for you to be assured that God is able and is actually doing the working of all things together in your life for good. We have explained to us in 29 and 30 that he's had a purpose for you from before the world began and it will not be complete until you're in heaven completely glorified when the world comes to an end. All those that God calls, he justifies. Right. What is justification? It's going to be explained to us probably as well as any place right here in the following words. In verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. You want a Bible definition for justification? There are several places we could go, but that's one. 833, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. The understanding of that verse is if a man's justified, there's nothing you can lay to his charge. So what does it mean to be justified? To be innocent and free from all charges of sin. But now that's only looking at it from one side, isn't it? Because it's better than that. Is justification better than that? Justification includes some accounting work on the books of heaven. What is that accounting work? That all the assets procured by the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of his perfect righteousness is transferred, imputed, accounted, counted, reckoned. Four verbs used in the New Testament to tell us that his righteousness is put to our account. The God of heaven, legally speaking, in the dispositions of heaven, in the law court of heaven, has said their, their wickedness and their sins have been washed away by the death and blood of Jesus Christ. And his perfect righteousness by his perfect life has been assigned to their account. That is justification. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. Any reader of Romans already understood free justification. Because way back in Romans chapter 3, it looked, listen to these words. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. Those are terrible words. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. How will we ever experience the glory of God and partake of it? Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the readers of Romans, by the time they got to chapter 8, they'd already been taught that it has nothing to do with Moses. It has nothing to do with the law. It has to do with the faith of Jesus Christ, which is, which is given to everyone that believes, so that he can be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, God has justified you. How did he justify you? Freely by his grace through Christ Jesus. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. On this, on this link of salvation called justification. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 
This is a transaction that's taken place in heaven. And the Apostle Paul was an ambassador from heaven to tell them about it, that God had reconciled them to himself through Christ Jesus, because he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Jesus had no sin of his own, but he took our sins upon him. We had no righteousness of our own, but Jesus Christ secured, paid for, and bought his perfect righteousness, the perfect righteousness of God, which was put on us. What a change. That's justification. Without it, we can't be in heaven. But it doesn't make us his sons like adoption. Moreover, it says, whom he justified, them he also glorified. You know, this chapter has already told us about our glorification. Look at verse 17. Romans 8, 17. If children... The first 16 verses are to convince you that you're a child of God. If children, then heirs. If you're a child of a rich man, you should have something coming. If you're a child of God, you've got something coming. If children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. The lot of God's children in this world has been of a group of poor. The poor of this world. God has chosen rich in faith. They were persecuted and hounded by the civil authorities and chased and tortured, tormented, imprisoned, banished, and killed. And they're suffering. And their suffering is an evidence that they're a child of God because they're doing it for the sake of Jesus Christ and the persecution they're enduring is because of Jesus Christ. But look at what it says about them in verse 17, that we may be also glorified together. Paul's already introduced this fact that we're going to be in heaven in God's glory. Verse 18, for I reckon, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. There is a glory of your spiritual resurrected body that we cannot fully describe. All Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 is, it's very different than anything you know now. Just like when you put a seed, a kernel of corn in the ground, the, the 12, 6, 8, depending on what kind of corn you plant, or 14-foot stalk that comes out of that ground is entirely different from that little seed. And when we are planted in the ground, we're going to come out with a glorified body, very different. There's one glory of the sun. There's another glory of the moon. I'm reminding you of 1 Corinthians 15. Because it describes there that we're going to be glorified with a totally new body. We're going to be in heaven. There'll be no more sickness. There'll be no more crying. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more sin or temptation, brethren, because we'll have been delivered from these bodies of corruption. That's what we're heading toward. And the apostle had already presented that in verses 17 and 18. And he also said it in verse 21. Because the creature itself, that is the whole natural creation, shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. To the degree that sin taints, corrupts, perverts, rusts, this whole creation, it's going to be lifted when we're experiencing the full liberty of the children of God. And that day is coming toward us. When we're going to be liberated from our bodies of corruption and we're going to be in heaven forever. Early this morning, I was told that there's no insulin in heaven because there's no diabetics there either. And for whatever affliction or infirmity we suffer with here, there'll be none there. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you, God our Father, for guaranteeing our eventual glorification, as verse 30 tells us. So we have two verses, verses 29 through 30, that are promising these saints in Rome that the God that they love, who is working all things together for their good, has foreknown them from the beginning and predestinated them and called them gave them the vocation of the sons of God, enabling, regenerating, and giving them the spirit and heart of a child of God. He's justified them, and he's glorified them, because it's so sure that he will. They could rest in the, on their sandy knees beneath the city of Rome, 
knowing that if they were the ones pulled out the next day to be sacrificed in the floor of the Colosseum, there was a God in heaven that had foreknown them from the beginning. He had predestinated them. They, would good, they were going to be joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And there's nothing that could stop that purpose of God. They were called, justified, and would be glorified. And so he opens up with his first rhetorical question in verse 31. There's two of them in that verse, but the second one is an answer. What shall we say then to these things? Now, sometimes it takes a therefore, sometimes it takes a wherefore, sometimes it just takes the word then to tell us that a conclusion is being drawn. Here we have the word then. It, it doesn't just say, what shall we say to these things? It says, what shall we say then to these things? Drawing a conclusion. These people were suffering. These people had infirmities. But in light of what God was going to do for them in life, verse 28, and what he was going to do to bring them to eternal glory, verses 29 and 30, what's the conclusion? What shall we say then to these things? Here's a new set of things. What are these things? The foreknowledge of God. The predestinating purpose of God. The calling of God. The justification by Christ. Eventual glorification. That's the things. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? It's in the form of a question only for the last half of that sentence. The first half is, if God be for us, who can be against us? Can Nero be against us? If we've got to go stand before Nero, can he be against us? Not a chance. Because the God in heaven has a purpose for us, that everything now is going to work together for our good, and everything else that he's working, all the operations of grace, are going to work for us to enjoy eternal glory forever. And for the rest of this chapter, he is going to pour it on by showing them that God's guarantees of their well-being here and there were sufficient for them not to fear anything Because there's no sword, there's no peril, there's no nakedness. You've never been naked. Like these people. There's no famine that could separate them from the love of Christ. There's nothing in heaven for its height or in earth for its depth. There's no angel, there's no principality. There is no power in heaven or in hell that can separate them from the love of God their Father. And he is going to pour it on from this point to the end of the chapter so that these saints in Rome would be fully established. And I pray the same thing for your souls this day. Fully established that there is a God who's created all things, but in his creative purpose, it also involved his purpose for the salvation of each of us to be conformed to the image of his son that Jesus Christ in heaven will not be alone. He'll have a whole congregation, a whole church of brethren that have been conformed to His image, you and I are going to be part of that number by the grace of God. How do we know? Because we love God. When we go back to 828, the the, the statement for us that's in there, and it's unnecessary except to remind us, how do we lay hold of the promises in Romans 828 through 39? How do we make them ours? How can we know? How can we make our calling and election sure? How can we make our justification, our foreknowledge, and our glorification sure? By loving God. And what does it mean to love God? It means to delight in Him. It means to want to serve Him. It means to hate doing anything that displeases Him. And when you displease Him, you confess that to Him and beg for His forgiveness. It means to delight in His Word. It means to love His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to love all of His other sons. This is the evidence of eternal life. The devils believe and tremble, but they don't love God. Love is the greatest grace and the greatest evidence of eternal life. What shall we then say to these things? If God's working everything, uh, if God's working all things, let's use the Bible terminology. If God's working all things together for good to us that love God now, and if God has set in operation five links of a golden chain of salvation, What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? If emissaries come from Jerusalem with the appointment and authority of the high priests, 
that say that any following Jesus of Nazareth have been cut out of temple worship and cut out of Moses' justification by the law, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, what do we care about what they say? And were there emissaries sent like that throughout the Roman world, out of Jerusalem, to say that without the law of Moses and circumcision you couldn't be saved? If God be for us, who can be against us? If Nero says, to the games. Do you know what to the games means? You're going to be used for sport in the Colosseum. If God be for us, who can be against us? If some relative of yours were to cut you off and throw you out of the house and leave you destitute and naked and tell you that you had no part in their family any longer, if God be for us, who can be against us? Amen. This is the word of the Lord. This is what God's done for us. Do you love him today? Run to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Believe on him. He is the son of God. And he's a coming king. Do you know what it tells me in 2 Thessalonians 1? And there's a reason I wanted you to read that, Jerry. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, there's two reasons. But we didn't get far enough to use them today, so I'll just use it right now. 2 Thessalonians 1 tells us that Jesus Christ is coming from heaven for two reasons. Number one, in flaming fire and with his mighty angels to wreak vengeance on all them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, to be admired by all them that believe in that day. And in parentheses, because our testimony was believed. When we met you Thessalonians. Do you know what Paul was telling them? I'm telling, you, I'm telling you the church of the Thessalonians. As Paul wrote them. When Jesus Christ comes back. It's going to be to burn up all your enemies. But for you. You're going to admire him in that day. Because he is going to be your glorious savior. And how do I know that about you? Because you believe the gospel that I preached unto you when I was there. And if you have believed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the evidence. That when Jesus Christ shows up with his mighty angels in flaming fire to wreak vengeance on his enemies. You'll be admiring him. Praise the Lord. You know what it tells us about that? That we ought to love his appearing. That he is coming for those that love his appearing and are looking for his appearing. And may that be true of us. This is what God's done for us. We are predestinarian Baptists. And God our Father has a purpose for us. It involves all things working together for good in this life. And it involves our glorification in the next life. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.